sitting on a bench in Queen Square, which is in the center of Bristol. Now, Bristol is a wonderful town in the southwest of England. It's a cold um, summer's day, which is not uncommon in Britain. And it's uh, just, it's rained over the night. And it's feeling quite fresh. And maybe you can hear the seagulls in the background. Sitting here thinking about this next episode, and it's on a topic that I think is really, really quite essential, important. And, I, and, and I'm thinking about it because I was just off from a run with one of my gremlins, Misha. He's a wonderful, wonderful person, as are my other two, Theo and Zana. And thinking about one of the, I think, one of the greatest attributes that they have, and I'm so pleased by. And what it is, is it's not their confidence. I don't find confidence actually very interesting. If you're doing something with confidence, you're doing something more or less knowing what's going to happen. And if you already know what's going to happen, well, in some sense, why do it? So confidence is really predicated on certainty. And there's so much certainty, uh, projected certainty in the world right now. In fact, I would say that that's one of our biggest challenges right now is the certainty that so many people seem to have in their views, their beliefs, and their lived experience. Whereas, and there's another attribute which I think is far more interesting, which is courage to do something knowing that it might fail and in fact most things fail statistically most things fail restaurants think about restaurants 80 90 percent of restaurants that are started fail people start with such hope and anticipation and desire and they start with courage because the reality that they're probably going to not succeed which is not necessarily the same thing as failure so when I say to my team, I have a wonderful group of misfits, and one of the things I say to them is that you know we're most likely going to fail. Uh, that's that's the reality. It's really difficult for things to succeed. It's very easy for things to fail. But that's not the question. That's not the issue. The question or the issue is not whether or not we fail. It's let's just make sure that we fail for the right reasons. So if we're going to fail, let's fail for the right reasons, not for the wrong reasons, not because we couldn't be bothered, not because we didn't wake up and work hard, but if we fail because maybe we just weren't creative enough or something in the world happened that was beyond our control, like COVID, well, then we're failing for the right reasons. And my view is that if you, if you try to fail for the right reasons, you're more likely to succeed. But to step into a situation knowing that is courage. And courage enables people to achieve things that they never thought possible. Whereas confidence isn't quite like that. So given the significance of courage, where can we find it? Where can we find it in the world? Where can we find it in ourselves? And that's what this episode is about. So thank you for listening. So no brain exists on its own. When we are feeling especially low and transparent, thriving can require others, and in particular, their courage. The example is my daughter, Zana. Uh, she's a remarkable dancer. And once, when she was young, before she went on stage, uh, she came to me and said how nervous she was. And I could see the anxiety in her eyes, but also in her body's posture, and even in the color of her face. Not only was she afraid of what might happen, it seemed to me that she was also afraid of the fact that she was afraid. 
since, after all, aren't we supposed to be confident? Aren't we meant to make decisions and stick to our guns, come what may? Our society focuses so much on confidence. Schools try to teach it. Parents reward it. Coaches punish you if you don't have it. Businesses pay you more if you fake it. The logic is that confidence engenders success. But does it? Ironically, research has shown that confidence can actually engender exactly the opposite. Poorly considered decisions and thoughtless actions that can create harm. Because when we're confident, we're often forgetting to ask questions. So I said to Zana, yes, I understand that you're scared. That's because you're smart. What you're doing is scary, since it could all go wrong. But what's amazing to me, and what I'm so proud of, is that you're going to do it anyway. And that is remarkable. In fact, what's true for Zan is also true for Misha and Theo. It's, it's one of the most basic attributes of them that I'm so very proud of. So her behavior, that's courage, not confidence, which is so much more interesting to me. Stepping forward knowing that you're likely to fail, stumble, fall, or head in the wrong direction, that's powerful. Zana had and has the courage to step forward. It was her brain that was square because it knew correctly that she could fail publicly. And failure is failure, by the way. To fail is hard. To do so publicly is to risk ridicule and even exclusion. No matter how often we attempt to rebrand failure as failing forward, as in Silicon Valley, or that there's no such thing as failure. Well, the fact is failure exists, and it hurts, and it's meant to. The brain requires feedback. Without feedback, there is no learning, much less existence, which I've talked about in the previous episode. The pain we feel when we fail is a perception that helps us learn that an action, idea, or thought might have been ill-judged, wrong, or hurtful, accidentally or otherwise. To ignore the feedback would prevent the possibility of actually growing from it. Courage is to have the strength to engage with the feeling of failure and to be humbled by its inevitability while remaining indomitable in the face of it. This is the route to understanding, which can lead to healthier optimism. And yet we're so often told, just keep smiling, by many positive psychology practitioners, gurus, and wellness coaches. It is well known that smiling and having an optimistic attitude on life more generally are good things to do. Those who score high on measures of optimism have increased self-esteem and can even live longer, healthier lives. This is partly because optimism is associated with the release of neurotransmitters dopamine and serotonin that lower the body's stress response to conflict. Endorphins, our natural painkillers, are often released when we smile and feel optimistic. Given these well-quantified effects, fostering optimism is clearly important for increasing personal and social wellness, especially in times of increased corrosiveness and where young people face a constant barrage of highly polarizing, caustic views from social media. Ironically, though, the kind of optimism that is typically encouraged can actually decrease personal wellness and resilience and can even block others from thriving. Why? Because of how it's measured. The predominant measure goes like this. When something bad happens, the optimist believes that it will be short-lived, it will not impact the rest of their life, and it was beyond their control anyway, and therefore usually someone else's or something else's fault. 
Conversely, when something good happens, the optimist believes exactly the opposite. That it will be long-lived, it will affect the rest of their life, and it's because of them anyway. This is measurably true. People who feel optimistically typically respond in this manner. But it's also the case that this kind of optimism, which has been strongly cultivated in our culture and businesses, can also increase ignorance, self-denial, narcissism, and even result in deep emotional trauma, and not only for the optimists, but for others too. So in times of uncertainty, an optimism that is predicated on ignorance is not what we need, nor the projected self-confidence that it inspires. It's courage and compassion that are essential. And where should we look for it? To whom should we look? To those we have looked to for centuries, well, until recently. To those who are some of our greatest heroes. To those who personify courage in their mere existence and who have a need to give compassion and care. To those who we too often hide away, and not by their choice, but by our choice. A choice that's not in their service, but in the service of hiding them for the consequences of the fact that life is cyclical. Who are they? Those with age and openness. And by openness, I don't mean the kind of openness that we often like to celebrate, the kind that is captured by personality, profile tests, extroversion. An extrovert is, by definition, a person who's open to new experiences. This is an important kind of openness to be sure which is commonly associated with adventure and liberalness. But here I'm referring to a different, potentially more powerful, transformative and inclusive kind of openness. Being open to letting go of the meanings of past experience. It's very much possible to have someone who is both open to new experiences, but intransigent to letting go of the meanings of past ones. I call them conservative liberals, example, where the guardian becomes the Bible and not a source of information and or opinion to be questioned, as is the telegraph. Conversely, it's equally possible to have someone who is less desiring of new experiences, but also able to let go of the meaning of the experiences they've had. I call them liberal conservatives. For me, liberal is less about where you start from and more whether you're willing to move from wherever you start. Since your brain will never stop moving, what changes is the word we use to describe it. When we are young, we call it development. When we are older, we call it aging, as if one kind of change is generative and the other is degenerative. This distinction is not always the case. The brain just changes. The question is whether you will take agency and ownership of that change and its consequence. Since, like fine wine, the way the brain changes with time can actually be an improvement. For instance, it was once thought surprisingly recently that one's personality was fixed, that the big five traits could not change with time, but they can, and often for the better. For instance, a longitudinal experiment has shown that the following personality traits can actually get stronger on average with age. They are agreeableness, so people become more warm, friendly, helpful, generous, and, and tactful. Conscientiousness, which is becoming more organized, efficient, and committed. And emotional stability, in other words, less neurotic, which means they become more calm and content and unflappable. Equally, the dark triad of traits can diminish with age. Less Machiavellianism, less narcissism, and less psychopathy. 
These are good changes, important changes that can add significant value to others as well as to one's own life. But there are also other changes that happen with age. One of them is fear. Fear and anxiety typically increase as one's brain gets older. This helps explain why older societies tend to be more religious. It's intuitive as to why. As we age, we accrue experiences that directly and increasingly illustrate that, statistically speaking, dying is easy because there are so many ways to do it. It's staying alive that's hard. So by the time one is 70 or 80 or 90 years old, or much, much younger, depending on one's life experience and critically how one responds to their life experiences, there are countless times that have been encoded in the brain that tells itself getting out of bed is a bad idea, quite literally. When someone at this age falls and breaks a bone, the probability of death within the next 12 month increases by over 30% even after the bone heals. The risk of falling has twice the risk of death as does COVID for those who are 80 years old and more. Moving in body and mind can be a dangerous enterprise. By contrast, the young, including those at 53, such as myself, know a great deal less. We are more naive with a smaller database of experiences. Our perceptions of risk are different because our assumptions and biases are grounded in our own more limited experiences. What's more, the brains of the young also have the ability to extinguish fear faster. You see, when we experience a fearful stimulus, the area of your brain called the mandibula becomes more active. And that increase in activity is associated with being afraid. But then, shortly thereafter, another part of your brain, one of my favorite regions, called the prefrontal cortex, kicks into action and inhibits the activity of the amygdala, extinguishing that perception of fear. The ability for the prefrontal cortex to inhibit the amygdala can be more plastic and even faster for young people than for older people, which means fear for elderly can linger. Why am I saying this? Because I want you to feel, and not just know, how remarkable those people who have been living life for 70, 80, 90 years, or anyone who has had objectively serious, continuous traumas in their life at any age, and yet remain open. They are some of society's greatest heroes. They are true misfits. Despite all the evidence about real dangers of the world, they choose to move, both physically and when possible, more importantly, mentally and emotionally. They have the openness and the humility to let go of what they thought to be true before. We should celebrate these heroes in our midst since that's where the courage of wisdom lives. They're the ones we can look to in times of uncertainty. A dear friend of mine, Dwayne Michaels, who at 87 years old, is one of the world's greatest living photographers. He recently told me that at 87, he is more creative than he's ever been before. During this time of COVID, he's finding deep insight in creating content that continues to question, challenge, and even laugh at our assumptions and biases. How? Because he tells me, with age, he knows less and less and less, but he understands more. And in doing so, he continues to dance. So today, might I suggest that you think of a person in your life who has age and openness and call them and just listen. My name is Bo Lotto and thank you for listening to my Expanding Perception podcast 
which will be an ever-expanding story of the neuroscience of uncertainty and how we can not just cope with it, but expand because of it. My aim in creating this podcast is really to try to help you increase your perceptual intelligence, which will give you the ability to make the decisions and take the actions that will foster a more loving, adaptable, and optimistic life in an increasingly uncertain world. My hope is that this podcast will help you in your journey to self-honesty, which is one of the hardest journeys we can take in our life, since it's a never-ending practice and might take you to places that you might want to avoid. But if you have the courage and compassion to go on this journey, you'll find that it's worth it, and it will create true authenticity in your way of being. A deeper consideration of many of the ideas in the Expanding Perception podcast can be found in my book, Deviate, The Creative Power of Transforming Your Perception. You can also follow me and my Lab of Misfits on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also take part in experiments on the Lab of Misfits website that we've designed just for you to help you better understand who you are. So thank you, and I hope you enjoy these episodes. Mm -hmm.